Episode 24, Ash Taylor, founder of The Business Clubhouse. You know, life is uh, one big mistake after another, and, and, and I seem to have done run the gamut. I'm Mark Graben. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. This is episode 24. You can find links and more information at markgraben.com slash mistake 24. Thanks for listening. And now on with the show. Well, hi, welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Graben. We're joined today by Ash Taylor. He's our first guest coming to us from England. So I'm very excited and happy about that. Ash is, among other things, the founder of the Business Clubhouse. Uh, He is the speaker, uh, a speaker and a business coach supporting small business owners. And he has also authored a book that is going to print soon and will be available in early December called Hitting the Wall. So I'm sure we'll um, talk about that. So, Ash, um, how are you? Thank you for joining us here today. I'm, I'm really good. I don't know whether to say good morning or good evening, as as we as we are here. Um, I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me on. Yeah. Morning, uh, morning for me. Early evening uh, for you. It's probably already dark. Uh, very dark. Very dark. dark for a couple of hours. <laughs> we're in that time of year. So, um, Ash, you know, as you were getting ready for um, the podcast here and thinking about this. What would you say is your favorite mistake? Um, well, Mark, I, I, I guess you've probably heard um, something along these lines from many of your guests, uh, and, and there are, you know, life is uh, one big mistake after another, and, and, and I seem to have done run the gamut. So yeah, um, it was it was a great question. It really intrigued me. It got me thinking. I've had discussions with my wife. I've had discussions with my team, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's kind of for me, it, it was very much. Uh, one mistake inside of another mistake, if you like. So um, my favorite mistake is, is based around my old business. So we ran quite a significant tennis coaching business, uh, you know, a couple of thousand kids that we were working with across multiple venues. And um, the, the thing that um, really resonated with me with this is the mistake I made was working with clients who we were not suited for. Mm. So we were very much a startup business um, we accelerated very, very quickly. And part of that was because our marketing was so successful. And we, we ended up taking on clients that um, on reflection, and, and quite quickly on reflection, we realized that uh, they were the wrong sort of people for us. We were not the best, um, you know, best place to serve them. And, and it, it led to a number of challenges, uh, one of which was um, – a big mistake, but not um, my favorite, which was losing the business, mm. um, that business. But it, it, it's also something that has, has stuck with me. So, yeah, that was the thing that really kind of jumped out at me was that whole understanding of who your client is and that not everybody is, is suited to working with you. And I think a lot of people make that mistake. Um, I, and I see it all mm-hmm. the time now. Yeah. Um, even as we go along. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd like to hear more about that. I mean, what what, what are the different profiles of um, clients who are looking for tennis coaching? What what how and and you know, what was that profile that was not a good fit? How did you learn that? 
Um, so we, we specifically with clients, it was less the players and more the clubs that we were working with, the venues that we were working with. Mm. So a perfect club for us would have um, between four and six courts. They would have at least two floodlit courts. Um, they would be near a, a reasonable sized town. Not didn't have to be huge, but there, there needed to be at least four schools. Um, so you, you could generate enough enough custom for that club. And, and we, we realized very quickly, because we were having uh, quite an impact quite quickly, we were getting people to approach us because of the marketing. And we ended up saying to clubs that were sort of two courts, no floodlets, tiny village, not enough of a catchment, you know, the wrong sort of demographic, and going, oh, yeah, we can help you. That's not a problem. And then you're, you're really struggling to kind of get your model to work for these clients. Things go wrong quite quickly. And, and suddenly you're in a position where you're thinking, well, this should work. You know, it's a tennis club. It's got tennis courts and people want tennis coaching. And we're doing everything that's worked in all these other clubs. But why isn't it working? And, and it's only when you kind of really drill down and you, and you recognize that actually we've got really good at what we're doing because we've isolated a problem within a certain niche and a certain environment. And we're able to solve that problem. And that doesn't always translate within the same industry because mm-hmm. there's niches within niches i guess yeah and so was was your business model or was was the service that you would come in to a club and you would be the on-site coaches if they were not already providing that service yeah so so t- so typically those clubs there was there was stuck between not being quite big enough or being in a um a demographic um, area that allowed them to um, uh, appoint a full-time coach to serve that club. So they were kind of stuck in between. So they'd end up with like a, you know, a rolling team of part-timers who were a bit unreliable. So we would come in, we would appoint a coach who would work across that venue and another venue geographically nearby, giving the coach full-time work and the clubs the amount of fulfilment that they needed for their for their demographic for their for their catchment area. So it, when it worked, it was a really really good model, really good model. Um, but yeah, when you, when you don't have floodlights, you don't have a clubhouse, and <laughs> nobody would come. Yeah. It made it very very difficult. So yeah, interesting learning. So I'm sorry that that business didn't work out, but it sounds like there are lessons that you've carried forward through your own work and business now and serving as a business coach. Um, As you work with people today, do you have a a process for going through and trying to determine upfront if uh, a business is that, that right fit that they're suited for your coaching for the business clubhouse? How do you do that today? Well, it's interesting because I said at the beginning that there was a mistake within a mistake. And I think, um, well, I know, I don't think I know that, you know, uh, I, I I started coaching business owners rather than tennis players uh, probably seven or eight years ago now, and I found myself sitting with a client about ooh, four years, five years ago, and sort of there was just this kind of lack of energy, and I'm sitting there going, "There's something weird about this. I don't quite get it." And it suddenly just sprung on me: I've got the wrong client. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think the kind of overall learning there was, although I'd made that mistake in my old business and I'd recognized it for what it was, I'd assumed that the, that the tennis coaching business was unrelatable to what I was doing now. 
And, and that in itself was a big mistake because I spent a long time trying to create this new model into new structure. And where the business clubhouse works really well is I've just actually taken my tennis coaching experience and the model and everything that we used and ported it across. The only difference is that we don't have to run at the same time as learning and, and being challenged and, you know, being educated, if you like. So I think that, that was the kind of... The, the, the real favorite bit was that that moment where you just think oh my god I've done this before and I'm doing it again mm-hmm. and I'd made this assumption that what I did in my old business was so unrelated to what I'm doing now whereas actually it was a perfect fit and you you met Mark you mentioned the book the, the book and and it's it, that moment made me realize that actually that was the book that I needed to write mm-hmm. was the lessons learned as my in my coaching career as a tennis player um, and as running that tennis business, because they were all so relatable to business as well. Um, it sounds like, yeah, big learning. Well, you know, so it sounds like when you had you know that that new business, that recognition came more quickly. Maybe you know I think back to um, I, I, I used to play tennis growing up. Like you know you get better at recognizing one of your opponent's particular serves as a match mm-hmm. goes on. Okay, he's gonna he's yeah. gonna hit really wide and, and you start to pick that up where it may have really uh, surprised you in the first and in, in, in you learn and adjust. It seems like there's maybe uh, a parallel there of yeah. starting to see that, um, that situation more quickly, at least. Yeah, I think so. I think you, you, if you're awake to it, and I think this is one of the challenges that we come across all the time is, you know, people make mistakes and they don't, they don't ever sit down and, um, kind of dissect what caused that mistake and how how can they learn lessons to identify if they're going to make that mistake again. So I'll give you a, a perfect example. I wrote a blog about it a couple of years ago. My wife went out for dinner with a very, very close friend. They made a booking at a reasonably high-end restaurant in London. They turned up and there's a notice on the door saying closed for private party. Mm. So um, Russell, her friend, who's... Um, insolvency practitioner used to dealing with difficult people knocks on the door walks through the door as he walks through uh the, the there's a waitress behind the bar and she says and, and she says oh mr Payne." and he's like yes take a seat have a glass of champagne and she comes over and explains that they had somebody new start they didn't understand the booking system they made a mistake but if they just could wait for two or three minutes while they finished their champagne there was a taxi on its way to mm-hmm. pick them up to take them to the sister restaurant. Oh, wow. They turned up at the sister restaurant with a private booth available, a full bottle of champagne on the house. Wow. Now, the thing that I find fascinating about that is somebody in that organization has sat down with a team and asked the question, what do we do when we make a mistake? Mm-hmm. Not if, but when. Right. And when we make that mistake, what contingency are we going to put in place to make sure that people still leave our business happy? Yeah. And here I am telling that story. That's a fantastic story. When you talk about um, service recovery and um, turning what, what could have been a really bad, frustrating situation into something that they rave about. And look, you're, you're, you're demonstrating how good... <laughs> Stories about a business tend to um, get passed along that way. And it's, you know, I think that's a really interesting point of planning for what to do when we make a mistake. I think sometimes um, pride gets in the way and 
you know, uh, we'll say, well, no, well, we're, we're not going to make mistakes. So let's not waste time planning for that. And that that could trip trip up an organization, whether it's a restaurant or the realm I work in quite often, um, hospitals. Like as an engineer, part of my training is to think about what could go wrong. And um, sometimes in other fields, there's not that same comfort level. Or it, it almost sounds like superstition where somebody might say, well, if we, you know, as if we, if, if we don't talk about the risk it, or if we do talk about the risk that somehow makes it more likely to happen, you know, I'm like, well, no. yeah, it's, it's like the universal heroes and, <laughs> and fill in the gap. There's, I don't know if you're aware of it, but there's um, a great book called Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed. And he, he, he talks about the, the difference between um, the medical industry and the um, airline industry oh. and how the whole airline industry is set up yes. to, um, dissect every flight every mistake every error so that they're building this bank of experience based on real life errors whereas there's a bit of a, a hierarchical culture in the in the medical industry where you can't highlight mistakes you you, you it, it's it, there's a fear factor built in and and the, you know the two comparable um, industries are, are huge and it's it's a shame that one and there are some hospitals that learn uh, that are learning from the airline industry and changing right. things, and their, their incidences have gone through, you know, through the floor. Right, right. Because of that learning, so that those mistakes in that context, I think, are really powerful and very, very important. Yeah, I, I will. Uh, I'll definitely look that that book up. You said it was black box thinking. Yeah, great book. Good read. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's, and and one of the lessons I think from aviation or what's sometimes called high reliability organizations is that we respond not just when harm occurs but we get better mm -hmm. at responding when there's a near miss or we better yet um, are more proactive about identifying risk factors. Yeah. I mean, you know, you asked me earlier about what, what, what we do with, with the businesses that we work with and uh, about learning from mistakes. And, and, and it's, it's that there, it's one identifying the risk, but two, when you've identified the risk, making sure you put a process in place to, um, you know, minimize the impact of that that risk and I find it quite frustrating sometimes that people almost think that mistakes are one-off things right uh, and that then once I've made them they're never going to happen again <laughs> so running out of cash is a perfect example well okay I've run out of cash now that's a mistake I've made I'm never going to run out of cash again and then they worry why six months later they run out of cash again yeah because they haven't implemented any change in their processes or right credit process or anything like that to make sure that that doesn't happen again. And they haven't put any um, alerts in place for lack of another term to let them know that they might be going down that path. They just sort of keep running the way that they've run going, well, I've learned from that. It's not a problem. But unless you change the organization, the whole organization to change it, to be aware of it, nothing changes. Yeah. And, and I think of, you know, my roots originally were in the automotive industry as an engineer. And when there's a problem, the word containment gets used a lot in the auto industry. So thinking back to that restaurant story, that brilliant story that, that you told, the initial containment was the glass of champagne and the taxi cab and you know, being treated like royalty um, the rest of the evening. But then there's that important next step, as you were saying, how do we follow up and make sure the next time we have a new employee that our training is better? So that they understand the booking system, and we don't have to continually, um, you know, 
monthly or quarterly or every time we have a new employee, whoops, here was that mistake, pull out the, the champagne plan, um, that, that, that longer term response. Some organizations are very good at containment, but they end up yeah. solving, quote unquote, solving, containing the same problem over and over again. It seems like you've learned this lesson as well about having to go back to more of, uh, if you will, the root cause of the situation. Yeah, it's it's um, it's all about uh, you know whether you're you're being curative, I guess, um, or preventative, and, and you know sometimes, as you say, the containment, the cure needs to be put in place. But in an ideal world, that bottle of champagne will, will stay behind the counter forever <laughs> because yeah. they'll never need it because it, you know it's, it's the steps. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's it's asking. I think it's asking why often enough in reverse. Yeah. So. You know, why was the booking made? Well, because we had a new member of staff. Well, why did the member of staff not know about that system? And you know, you keep asking those questions in reverse engineer it. You know, yeah. you understand that obviously, yeah. and that's how you get to the, the core, the core reason fundamentally. Yeah. So um, I'd like to learn more about the business clubhouse and you know mm-hmm. why why you started. Um, the organization and what, you know, why, why do small businesses come to the business clubhouse? What are they looking for? What are they getting in terms of coaching and support? Okay. Well, um, I guess, uh, and it, it, it kind of goes back to the, the mistakes of not pulling my um, model learnings from my old business. If I knew one, when I started um, coaching business coaching, I, I did the typical thing of going out and looking for one-to-one clients and I, I did that and I was able to have an impact and it was kind of a mixture of coaching and consulting. And then I realized quite quickly um, that I wasn't having a big enough impact. And my, my joy in um, the tennis world was not working with elite players, but working with five-year-olds who'd never hit ball before, or working with disabled players who, you know, who, who could not walk but, and were, you know, wheelchair bound, but were able to play tennis. Oh, wow. um, you know, I'd spent quite a lot of time working in a deaf school, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've, I wanted to find a, a model that would enable more people to access coaching, mm-hmm. more people to access support, more people to be able to lean on my experience and my mistakes and the mistakes of the other people as well. And, and you, you go back to the kids that I used to teach, the, the kids that kind of accelerated their learning did so in a peer group environment. Mm. So when you put kids in groups, they get competitive, they learn off each other, they try stuff, they're not intimidated by somebody who's bigger and heavier and stronger and more experienced. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, they're pushing each other along in 1% increments, if you like. <laughs> and, and I realized less quickly than I'd like that there was an opportunity to kind of create something in the business, um, in the business world as well. A lot of, certainly over here in the UK, a lot of um, small business owners will, I know we all work from home at the moment, but work, work from home, service-based, are very good at what they do, but don't necessarily have any formal business education or, 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 or learning. You know, anyone can start a business. And there are lots of things that they know they should know, but they don't. And we we certainly have, have had a culture, I think, in, in, in this country of, um, being scared of putting your hand up and asking for help at school. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're in the classroom, the teacher asks a question, you put your hand up to answer it, and one of two things happens. The um, teacher either says, why can't you keep up? Okay. Or your or your friends bully you because you're the class swat. 
So you learn very quickly to keep your hand down. Yeah. And not ask stupid questions. Right. And I think that stays with us. I mean, there is no such thing as a stupid question, but the, to you, you know, that the perception is that. Right. So what we've now tried to do is create an environment where people, a psychologically safe environment where people can ask the daft questions. People can get support from each other, you know, their, their peers, and learn from each other's mistakes, learn from each other's successes, um, and, and, and ask the questions in any other environment they wouldn't be able to ask. I think the other thing is, is that we're, we're providing somewhere where we're, we've got specific solutions to problems they're having, you know, so they don't have enough time. Well, okay, well, we teach them how to manage their diary properly. They don't know how to get more customers, so we teach them how to market effectively. They're not very good at selling because who gets taught how to sell? Mm-hmm. And, and everybody has that fear of the second-hand, you know, car lot salesman type thing. And right. they're all a little bit, yeah. And and so we help them get them get over that. They don't value themselves, so therefore they undercharge. Um, so therefore, you end up doing far more work than you have time for, and not earning any money. You know, so it's just it's helping people with those kind of. Um, mindset challenges, if you like, confidence, mm-hmm. and, and we have a lot of fun. You know, we 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 have, we have a lot of fun for each other. That's one of the most important things I learned. Is if you, you you're going to run a business, it's difficult. So where you can have some fun, sure. you should enjoy it. It's like it's like sport. I, I, you know, I watch a lot of football. You call it soccer. It's wrong. <laughs> Proper football. And there's nothing greater than seeing a footballer on a professional sportsman smile while he's playing his sport. Isn't that why we do it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was, uh, you, you probably didn't see it, but there was a, a highlight from uh, American football where uh, the quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals, you could see it um, so clearly as he's looking downfield and that moment he sees that his wide receiver is going to be open for a touchdown. He smiles <laughs> right before he throws the ball. And it was like this moment of... Um, of joy that you sometimes don't see in the sometimes so serious world of professional sports. That was, uh, it's, it's, it's so highly paid. There's so much money involved. There's so much pressure and sponsors and stuff. It's, it, it's, it's get to players. And I think business is the same. It's so competitive. People have this perception of, you know, I don't want to fail. I don't want to let my family down. You know, how do I go back to my mates who will just say to me, Oh, I told you so your wife's saying, why don't you get a proper job? You know, your mum's saying, well, we finally, you know, you finally come to your senses and doing something sensible. And there's that, it's that pride thing, isn't it? And yeah. I think we can create an environment where you can share those issues. Um, it's, it's a pretty cool thing. We're, we're really proud of what we've, we've built. It's yeah, well, that's great. And, and I love that you, you bring up the phrase psychological safety, because back to what you were mentioning earlier, um, that's something that aviation has created in that cockpit mm. environment, that yep. team environment. Yep the safety to speak up. Uh, many hospitals are still very much struggling, as you were saying, breaking down that hierarchical um, authoritarian um, culture and creating that psychological safety leads to patient safety. Completely. Completely. You know, if it's the people who are doing the work, who are in charge of you, don't feel they can speak up. That's, that's dangerous because they don't, you know, sometimes the people who are closest to it don't see the dangers. Yeah. So final thing I want to ask you about, um, you know, a different way of speaking up is writing a book. And so you've got to say, um, hitting the wall. Now that I know about your tennis background, I'm guessing there's a double meaning there. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not going to 
go through the whole book with you, but we, we came up with this idea of um, using the, the wall as an anchor. And, and the wall is a very specific wall in, in London where I grew up, where I learned to play against this wall. And yeah. it was the wall that made up the clubhouse of because I couldn't afford to join the club, but I could hit balls against the clubhouse wall. Oh. And, and it's kind of my journey from that wall um, and relating it to the walls we all have in front of us, the barriers that we all kind of have to deal with as business owners and as people and, and how to go around them, break through them, go under them, bypass them. And there have been a number of sort of um, pivotal instances in my life that we've used as kind of anchor lessons to dig into some of those um ways and, and lessons of getting past that wall or those walls if you like so it was a lot of fun writing it um yeah. and and i learned a lot about myself <laughs> which was great and um i had a lot of help but it's been it's been a really good journey i've really enjoyed putting it together and it's um i think it's it, in some ways it's been quite cathartic mm-hmm. um you know you realize that you're carrying stuff from your past and when you actually get it out and you analyze it and you write it and you go well, what are the lessons and you realize you're not just sharing those lessons with other people, but you're reminding yourself that those lessons are true for you as well. Yeah. And I, and I, I think I, I've spoken to a few people who have, you know, authored books recently and, they, and they've said similar things that actually when they sort of distill down the stuff they're, they're going through and they've been through in the past and they lay it bare, it's very cathartic. So, yeah, yeah it's cool. Yeah. Well, it's a, a, a big accomplishment. I've written um, a couple of books. and I've seen, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's so congratulations um, for that. Many people start a book. It's a smaller subset like yourself who, who finished the book and have it um, ready to go to print. Um, there's one other, one other question. Um, did you feel like there were any mistakes in the writing process? I mean, beyond like, you know, a typo, but um, it's something you learned about the writing process that surprised you. Yeah, I mean, going back to what you said, I mean, I think I've tried to write this book three times. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I you, you got some help with somebody, you know, I, again, maybe this is a learning. I've had coaches all my life. So I found myself a book coach okay. um, who helped me through it. And it made a, made a massive difference. Um, and yes, there are areas in the book. Um, I think as we grow and we learn things about ourselves, you know, I'd probably write a different book today than the one I started three months ago. And, yeah. and in three months' time, it'll be slightly different. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely things in it that potentially will be a version two or a, a different yeah. option. And also, I think as we were writing, we go, oh, there's a book there around that chapter. <laughs> you know, I think that's what that comes out. Yeah. Um, but, that, you know, I thank you for sharing that you used a book coach. I used a book coach. Um, with the uh, the last book that I wrote, and I found that to be a very helpful experience. Um, and uh, every everybody could use uh, a coach. I think is definitely a theme that I hear from many of the guests on this show. Yeah, I, I, I it would be daft of me to advocate the power of coaching and not have coaches in my own life. And and I think you know I, I've been around coaches whether I've wanted them or not since I was about 13 and my life has massively benefited from having somebody who's around me or people's around me I'm a big power big um, believer in the power of mastermind as well and, that, and having peer groups and, and having people challenging you and not letting you um, rest on your laurels and and, and and enabling you to be a better version of yourself is, is a really cool thing it's a really powerful thing so but I can't I can't can't sort of promote that without using it. <laughs> it seems crazy. <laughs> I wouldn't be without one. <laughs> right. 
Well, Ash, thank you so much for um, you know, sharing all of that with us today. Um, our guest again has been um, Ash Taylor. I'll make sure there are links in the show notes for the podcast and for the video. The book again is Hitting the Wall. It should be available um, in November. Ash's website, um, of, amongst other websites, ash.taylor.co.uk. Um, so with that, again, Ash, thank you so much for being here and um, really, really appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for inviting me on. It's been great fun. Good thing. And um, again, congratulations and good luck with uh, the next phase of the book now, the book launch. So, <laughs> The book launch, yeah, that'll be the fun bit. <laughs> I'm sure we'll make some mistakes there as well. <laughs> well I'm sure you'll learn from them, so that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to pause and think about your own favorite mistake and how learning from mistakes shapes you personally and professionally. If you're a leader, what can you do to create a culture where it's safe for colleagues to talk openly about mistakes in the spirit of learning? Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. See you next time.